Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm your host, Penny Sarche. And I'm Rowan Hooper, and we've got a very international team joining us on the pod this week. So from our new New York office, we've got Carmela Padovic callahan we've got Carissa Wong from London, and we've got Alice Klein from Australia. Uh, welcome to everyone. Hi. Hi. Coming up on the show, we're going to discuss a chemical computer and the project that's attempting to make a chemical brain. And if you noticed that our theme music was different this week, that's because we're going to hear about what happened when a neuroscientist joined a composer to create a dream machine. Which is very cool. Uh, We're also talking to a climate scientist about the record-breaking heat waves around the world. And we've got an incredible life form of the week this week with news of the first non-human animal to use medicine on wounded colleagues. All of that, and we're updating you with all you need to know about COVID, And we've got a special announcement for listeners in the US. Carmela, maybe you should make this announcement because you're um, our American representative this week. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Welcome from New York. And for all of our US listeners to mark the launch of our new office here. And I am in this very tall building with a great skyline. So you should know our office is uh, chugging along really well. And we've got an amazing offer for you. You can get three months free digital subscription to The New Scientist. If you go to newscientist.com slash unlimited, you'll get free access to all the premium content on our website and our new app. That's all our features, all our in-depth reporting and analysis, and every single one of our news stories. The offer is worth $50, so really we're snapping it up. Go to newscientist.com slash unlimited. And for everyone else in the rest of the world, you also have a great deal. You can get a 20% discount off a subscription to New Scientist. Go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to check it out. Now, we're going to talk first about heat waves. Yeah, so it's not even yet the middle of May, and we've already seen lots of temperature records being smashed, basically. Uh, we've had 44.4 degrees Celsius, that's 112 Fahrenheit in Texas. It's been hotter still in Monclova over the border in Mexico, and the heat wave's been extending into the central US. And then, like, if you look in Pakistan and India, forecasters are predicting temperatures over 50 Celsius, that's 122 Fahrenheit. So some really stark temperatures amid the news this week that there's a report from the UN's World Meteorological Organization and the UK Met Office that shows that there's a 50% chance that we'll breach the 1.5 degrees limit of global warming, the supposed safe limit, in the next five years. Yeah, so to discuss this, I spoke with climate scientist Vicky Thompson of the University of Bristol. And the first thing I asked her was about her recent research comparing the worst heat waves of all time. Vicky, thanks for coming on our podcast. Let's start with heat waves because you've just published some research comparing the worst heat waves of all time, which must have been a sobering experience. What did you find out? Well, our work was motivated by the big heat wave in the Western US and Western Canada last year. 
And it was quite a shocking event at the time, breaking records by almost five degrees. So we thought about that heat wave and wondered whether there'd been even bigger heat waves in the past that had maybe happened in areas of the world that aren't monitored as well or were just quite a way back in time. So weren't remembered so well. So that was why we wanted to look through past observations and see if there had been any greater heat waves. Right. Uh, And what did you find out? Well, quite surprisingly, we found that there were five heat waves that were greater than that heat wave in uh, the western parts of North America. We were looking at heat waves based on their variability compared to the local region, not just the absolute temperature. And that's one reason why some of these heat waves may not be noticed. The absolute numbers aren't, aren't necessarily the hottest ever seen, but they are the hottest for that region. Although a heat wave might not break a record, depending where in the world it is, it could have really big impacts. So in Europe in 2003, there was a really big heat wave, which had huge impacts. But that doesn't feature on our table because it was due to the response of people on the ground, how big the impacts were, not necessarily the high temperatures. And the area was just not not prepared for such a high event. So we do need to do more preparation for these things. Kind of like we need to prepare for another pandemic. We need to prepare for more heat waves. Yeah, so if the same heat wave came to Canada again this year, the area would be much more ready. They they know how to respond a bit better. So it's the first big record smashing event that has the biggest impacts. And so by collecting the historical data, does that allow us to better predict what we might expect in the future? I mean, because it feels like we're breaking records almost daily at the moment. And, you know, we're only at 1.1, 1.2 degrees of warming. So, you know, what can we expect? We did also look at how uh, climate projections suggest, climate model projections suggest the extremes will change into the future. And as we're already seeing, we saw that these heat waves will increase and they will become more frequent. One thing that we did find is that it will increase at the same rate as the global mean warming. So that uh, 1.1 degree value from the last year, that's the amount that we're expecting to see them increase, not with any acceleration, which is a bit of a relief. Yeah, well, what about the effect of heat waves on on human health and on agriculture and things like that? Because, you know, the big problem is with places like Texas and India, even, you know, people are used to high temperatures in those places. But now we're moving out of the range that people are used to. So what's going to happen? That's one of the things that we were thinking about. So people are used to what what the normal conditions are in an area. And as you say, in India, it's over 50 degrees, like you can't even imagine what that would be like if it happened yeah. in the more northerly area. And the impacts on humans will be great. The impact on agriculture, especially when this heat wave in India is happening earlier in the season than usual. So it will affect crops differently to what, what those crops are used to. They might struggle to even get growing at all this season. Um, the same was seen in Canada last year. They lost almost all of their cherry crop for the area. Um, so all these impacts, they'll have lasting um, following on consequences for the following seasons as well. I mean, we know what we need to do. We need to reduce emissions. But is is this filtering through to governments? And are they waking up to all of this yet? There were some good responses in Canada last year where uh, mayors of towns uh, are realising that, that climate change is happening right now. It's not something that we need to think about for our grandchildren. It's going to affect us as um, the Met Office report saying, in the next five years. Yeah. So I think they're starting to wake up. Yeah, so about that Met Office report showing a 50% chance that we'll break 1.5 degrees of warming in the next five years. I know that's only temporary because we have to take a long-term average of of warming, but it is worrying, isn't it? 
Well, yes, they're predicting a high likelihood, a 93% chance of the record year occurring in the next five years. So that will be a big event. Okay, we've heard about quantum computers, DNA computers, computers using light instead of electrons, regular computers, clockwork computers. (laughs) But today we have a new one, chemical computers. So Carmela, you reported on this for us. What's it all about? What is a chemical computer? Yeah, so if you think about what a computer is, it's a machine where you input some information and then some physics thing has to happen. So maybe electrical type stuff or some quantum process. And then you get an output, uh, maybe a solution to some problem you're trying to solve on the computer. And this new computer uses chemical reactions to do the information processing part. So um, if we think of a regular digital computer using uh, zeros and ones to store information, how does a chemical computer do that? Is it still digital? Not quite. So if you were to look at this thing, um, it's sort of like a plastic grid and each cell has a reaction going on in it, some sort of acid and salt situation. And those reactions flash red and blue light. You can program the computer by having these little stirrers that can speed up or slow down the reaction by stirring it, and that changes the flashing colors. So instead of looking for a sequence of ones and zeros, you look at this sort of 2D grid and keep track of all the reds and blues, and these cells can talk to each other. So it's sort of an interconnected color situation. It sounds really clever, but but quite laborious and, and complex. So um, does it have any advantages over more conventional electronics? Yeah, so right now this thing is um, 30 centimeters across and it's kind of big and wet. But if it could be made smaller, it could actually have some computational advantages because all these cells where the reaction happens, where the information processing happens, can talk to each other. This is really great for parallel computing. So if you could put it on a chip, you could do optimization problems like the traveling salesman problem that classical computers are actually quite slow at. So this could maybe beat classical computers in some very specific uses, either good for, say, logistics. And amazingly, you can 3D print this thing. You probably wouldn't have to buy it. Like if you have a chemistry lab, you could just kind of assemble it from scratch, which is which is quite nice. Wow. So all this has come out of the lab and the mind of Lee Cronin at the University of Glasgow. And he has got some pretty wild ideas, hasn't he? Because I remember him saying to me once that when he was a kid, he was given a Sinclair ZX81 computer, which I'm sure like all young people won't even know what that is, but it was, a, it was like a 1K computer and a chemistry set. But he had the idea to combine the two. And uh, I thought that was a really cool thing for a nine-year-old to think of. So his aim since then has been to make a chemical brain and try and explain consciousness. So is what he's doing now, is this chemical computer a kind of step towards that? Yeah, I think it is. Um, It's kind of funny when I talked to him, he told me that this machine is sort of like the ENIAC of the chemical computers. So even even further back than the ZX81. (laughs) But yeah, he has this whole insight that chemists are brains trying to do chemistry. So why not flip that? Why not get chemistry to be more like a brain? So this chemical computer can take digital inputs in the same way that our brain gets electrical inputs from our eyes and ears, and they both process these inputs through chemistry. Wow. So like a brain uses electronics in neurons, doesn't it? And chemicals, I guess, in the synapses. Or or is it all chemistry? Maybe it's all chemistry. 
I think this is really where things get complicated because <laughs> you've got electronics and you've got chemistry. And I think part of the mission of building devices like this new chemical computer, which does actually work, right? You can ask it a question and it will tell you an answer. This may be the first step towards unraveling how the chemical and the digital and the electronic all have to come together to help us process our understandings with, with our brains. Okay, let's take a break for some announcements. Tickets for New Scientist Live in London are now on sale. The show is on the 8th and 9th of October, and it's a brand new format combining the best of live and virtual experiences. So join us for thought-provoking talks and amazing interactive experiences brought to you by people shaping the world of science and technology. Book your ticket now to get the super early bird rate. Go to newscientist.com slash nslive. And come and explore the world with our unique science tours and expeditions. Tours departing in the next few months include marine ecosystems of the Azores in Portugal, ancient caves and human origins in northern Spain, Neanderthal origins in southern France, and dinosaur hunting in the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. Find out more at newscientist.com tours. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, one of my favourite segments, and we have a story about a species of ant with remarkable medical skills. A study of Matabele ants, which are large ants found in sub-Saharan Africa, has found that they can diagnose infected wounds in their nestmates and treat them with an antimicrobial medicine that they produce themselves. Rowan spoke to our reporter Alice Klein about this amazing discovery. Hi, Alice. Now, I was amazed to see this story. I love it. And it's really sophisticated, isn't it? So being able to diagnose and treat infected wounds. And how has this evolved in these ants? Yeah, I mean, I was really blown away by this story as well. It seems that compared to most other ants, these Matabele ants lead extremely dangerous lives and they're just getting injuries all the time. So instead of eating seeds or plant nectar like many other ants, their diet of choice is termites, which like to fight back by biting them and trying to rip off their legs. So, um, yeah, a bit of a risky strategy. That means that when these packs of Matabele ants conduct hunting raids on termite nests, about a fifth of them come away missing at least one leg. And so I guess they need a way to treat these injuries because otherwise just too many workers would die and their whole colonies would collapse. Yeah, because you kind of think of worker ants as being expendable in other kinds of colonies. So so how do they treat the injuries? 
Well, Eric Frank at the University of Würzburg in Germany, who's been studying these ants for a really long time, he found that when an individual becomes injured during one of these raiding parties, its comrades will pick it up and carry it back to its home nest, kind of like an ambulance, if you will. <laughs> I will. I, Just snuck that one in. Ambulance, yeah. <laughs> and anyway, once they return home, there are these nurse ants that lick their wounds clean and in some cases they actually apply an antimicrobial substance that they produce in glands in their backs. Wow. And I guess they've taken this stuff and tested it in the lab to find that it really is antimicrobial. Yeah, so the researchers analysed it using various methods and they found that it contains several proteins and organic compounds that look quite similar to known antibiotics and antifungals. And so then they went the next step and they, in lab experiments, they showed that this substance actually inhibits the growth of a type of soil bacteria that commonly infects ant wounds. Wow. And so how well does it work if you've lost your leg as an ant? Well, about 90% of infected ants that receive this treatment survive. And that's compared to just 5% of infected ants that don't receive this treatment. So right. I think you can say that it works very well. And what about the when they when they go in their ambulance and they get taken to the clinic? How do the ant the nurses know you know which ones to to treat? How can they tell uh, you know which wounds are infected? Yeah, so they lick all the wounds to clean them, and then to work out which ones um, have actually become infected. It seems like when an ant has a wound that that is infected, they produce different cuticular hydrocarbons. And these are chemicals that are found in their outer shells that they use to communicate with other ants. Right, yeah. So it seems like they're able to signal their infection status to the nurse ants through these cuticular hydrocarbons, and that lets them know when they need to administer this antimicrobial medicine. Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because um, those hydrocarbons, the cuticular hydrocarbons are used for policing in other ants for when uh, ants need to like look after the status and look up and control other ants in the colony. But are there other species we know of that can diagnose and treat infections in, in others? No, um, not unless you think of humans, because we can obviously do that. Yeah. But we did have a story earlier this year about chimpanzees being observed applying insects to the wounds of other chimpanzees. So yeah. that could be a similar thing, but we don't know if they could tell if the wounds were infected or if the insects they were applying actually had antimicrobial properties. We do know that there are some animals that can self-medicate, like apparently chimpanzees chew medicinal plants to get rid of parasites, but actually treating others seems to be much rarer. Yeah, that's amazing. So why is it that these Matabele ants are willing to treat others? Well, it's probably for the reason I touched on before, which is that it improves the, the overall fitness of their colony. So it's costly for nurse ants to produce this medicine and apply it to their injured nestmates, but then they gain by having more healthy workers to go out and bring back food for the whole colony. Similarly, there are some other ant species that actually send out rescue parties to free their nestmates that have become stuck in spider webs or under sand or something. <laughs> And that's for the same reason, so that they can maintain a critical population of workers that serve the colony as a whole. So it seems to be all about working together for a common good. Wow. 
Well, I love ants even more now. Thanks, Alice. And I must just squeeze in another life form of the week here. Uh, Listen to this. Can anyone tell me what that is? Is it is it a cricket? Yeah, it well, sounds like an insect. Of it does something. sound like an insect, doesn't it? What it is, is a bat buzzing like a bee or a hornet. Um, it's mimicking those insects so as to scare off predatory owls. And uh, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can check it out. Okay, Penny, let's uh, get an update on COVID because there's still so much going on with the pandemic, including that World Health Organization estimate last week that the virus had killed close to 15 million people. Yeah, that's such a grim number, isn't it? And um, I think, you know, once you're talking about millions of deaths, it's really hard to actually get your head around the reality of that, isn't it? But you're absolutely right. There's just so much going on at the moment, including reports of of really rapid reinfections and everything that's going on with new Omicron sublineages. Okay, well, let's start with the reinfection stuff. I mean, it feels like Omicron has swept through the UK during the first half of the year. Is there any hope that's going to buy us some fabled population immunity and a you know a bit of a breather mm. for a while? Yeah, so you're right. For for those keeping track, we've already had two peaks in COVID hospitalizations and deaths this year. So that was one in January and one in late March, early April. And so the first peak we can sort of largely attribute to the arrival of Omicron in the UK. And the second one was a mixture of a new sublineage of Omicron called BA2. And also, of course, the removal of all mitigation measures. So With such high recent infection levels, I think it is natural that people are asking, okay, I've just had COVID, how long am I sort of relatively protected before I can catch it again? But it's actually, I guess you won't be surprised by now with this virus, it's actually really difficult to answer that question with certainty because there's all these different factors. So one of them is that variants differ from each other. So we know that Omicron is more likely to reinfect than Delta, for example. And also, we just don't really have the data yet to be able to draw any firm conclusions. But the bad news is there was a Danish study that suggests it is possible to get reinfected in the region of 20 to 60 days. So, you know, within even three weeks or or within two months. But hopefully that is actually quite rare. But we don't we don't know for sure yet. No. Okay. But even though we don't know for sure, how much should we worry about reinfection if we've already had it? And say we had it and you were all right, sort of all right-ish with it. You know, is it all right to get it again? Yeah, that for me is one of the biggest questions right now, because if we're thinking about, okay, you'll probably, you know, run the risk of getting reinfected in, say, three months. You know, some people could be having it three times, four times a year, and we don't fully understand what that will mean for a person's health. So, I think it's probably fair to say that if you've already had COVID, you fared relatively well and you are vaccinated, then catching it again, you should hopefully not experience any severe effects right away. That's unless, of course, we get a more severe variant coming through. But in the longer term, we don't really know what the cumulative effects of repeated infection may mean for our health. So we know that this is a virus that can have a lasting impact on many of our organs, including the brain. And some are suggesting that the more times you have COVID, it's almost like you're rolling the dice more often with whether you get some form of long COVID. Okay, so what about variants? And what do we know at the moment about BA4 and BA5? Do we know, for example, if a a recent infection gives us any protection against these? 
Mm. So these are new sublineages of the Omicron variant that are spreading in South Africa. Um, they have been detected elsewhere, including in the UK. We don't fully understand their severity and characteristics yet. And in some ways, this is just becoming harder and harder every time there's a new variant, because we're at this point now where every country has its own population with different patterns of vaccination, different variants that have swept through at different times, different mitigation measures. So it's really hard to pull out those sort of headline statistics that that would apply to everyone. So there's no clear picture, but it is thought that if you've recently had an Omicron infection, BA1 or perhaps BA2 in, in the UK, and you're vaccinated, there's some hope of protection against infection and severe symptoms with BA4, BA5. However, we do know that immunity from vaccination is likely to be waning again in the UK following that booster campaign we had around Christmas. And another round of boosters is now being offered here to, to certain groups. So Penny, I wondered, when can we expect an Omicron-specific booster? Yeah, that's something that several pharmaceutical firms are focusing on now, as it's clear that various sublineages of Omicron are the the new normal, if you like, currently for COVID infections. And it's probably fair to expect that Omicron-specific boosters will start becoming available later this year. However, there is this feeling that because Omicron variants have been so infectious, caused such big waves around the world... It is possible that, you know, however short-lived immunity might be, we might have such high levels of Omicron population immunity now that we can expect um, a different type of variant, a non-Omicron variant to start coming through, one that's better at evading our current immunity. So, you know, we, we were all hoping that those Omicron boosters come through, but by the time that they do, we might not be that far off an entirely different sort of sub-variant of, of this awful virus. Um, Carissa, you having hallucinations again? <laughs> listening to that? Yeah, I did just. I did just cross yeah. my mind. Yeah. Um, so that music was by the composer John Hopkins, and he's been working with neuroscientist Anil Seth, uh, who we had on the pod a few little while ago, uh, amongst others. And he's, they've created this hallucinogenic, immersive experience called Dream Machine. And Carissa, you've been in it. Now, what was it like? Yeah, well, to be honest, at first I was just enjoying closing my eyes with a cozy blanket, but yeah, when I when they finally sort of turned on the sound and put on the the lights, it was actually quite incredible. I saw a whole rainbow spectrum of colors, uh, blues, yellows, greens. I even saw landscapes at some point, which I mean, I no one can tell me I didn't see that because the whole point is it's from your own mind. Um yeah. so yeah, I don't know whether that's just me imagining it, but I definitely saw, you know, geometric shapes and colors. So the light and the sound actually manipulate your brainwaves and that's what brings on the hallucinations, right? Well, yeah, so it it sort of centres around visual hallucinations, which are generated by lights flashing at a right frequency to sort of interact with your brainwaves. And then the sound is kind of a grounding sort of immersive experience that happens alongside the light. And, well, they didn't really know how the music and the light would interact to start with, but it seems to actually have a really big impact. It sounds amazing, but also the kind of thing where if it works really well, it might be actually a bit sort of panicky because, you know, you're losing your sort of grip on, on things. What did it feel like? Yeah, I must say, I I was a bit anxious. Um, and Anil, I went in with Anil Seth and we both were saying how we were a bit anxious to start with at the idea of sort of looking into our own minds. But 
I actually found it really relaxing, but it's not to say that others don't. And there were a couple of people who wanted to leave the room, but you kind of just have to go and see for yourself, really. Yeah, I I, I do want to see for myself on this. Um, anyone else fancy that? I really like John Hopkins' music, so you, you have me at that, really. <laughs> okay. Um, well, it's in London at the moment. It's moving to Edinburgh, Cardiff and Belfast. Yeah, and I spoke to John Hopkins, who composed the music, and here's a clip from him now. You experience it with your eyes closed, and as a composer, I mean, it turns out that the music actually seems to affect the images that people see, and everyone sees something different. You know, I noticed myself in the early prototypes that um, a certain chord would bring maybe a certain colour. You know, this is all happening behind closed eyelids with white light, so it's, it's quite fascinating, and, and I love the fact that it's not fully understood, but it seems to me like music has a quite a strange power in the, to affect what people are actually experiencing. It actually can change people's physiology just by calming them down, you know, it can change the balance of hormones in the body, um, reducing cortisol, you know, increasing serotonin, dopamine, like when you get tingles um, from music, like that's dopamine actually having enough goosebumps and that sort of thing. It's like, it feels to me like it's a power that was once understood a lot better. A lot of ancient Neolithic sites have a strong sonic component and they, you know, the the chambers in the, um, the Great Pyramid resonate on very specific notes and no one knows exactly why, but there's, to me it seems like there's, there's some great healing power in there that we um, may, maybe need to rediscover. And I think with the technology we have now, it could be a new phase of that because we're, we're starting to understand the brain and the body more and how sound affects it. And um, you can create any sound you want these days, like it's possible to imagine something and then bring it into reality. So. To combine that with something which um, gives your brain this opportunity to create something for you is, is pretty unusual. And there is a video of Carissa in the Dream Machine and we'll link to that in the show notes. That's it for this week. Do rate our show, leave us a review, subscribe and recommend us to your science-loving family and friends. Yes, and thanks to all our guests on the pod this week. Carissa Wong, Carmela Padovich callahan in New York and Alice Klein in Australia. And also thanks to climate scientist Vicky Thompson and composer John Hopkins for that music. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sashay. Bye for now. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.